Um, okay, open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're continuing in our series, Called Out and Sent In, as we're exploring the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll look at verses 11 through 25 today. But, but church, when you're slandered, the natural reaction is to defend yourself, isn't it? I mean, it is for me. Or when a political party is in power that you disagree with, the natural reaction is just to write that party off. Or when you do something good, but you suffer for it, everything in you wants to retaliate. Well, Peter invites those who have found new life in Jesus to live as Jesus did. And so how did Jesus respond to slander, broken governments, corrupt systems, and injustice? What does it look like to actually follow in his steps? Well, that's what Peter explores and what we get to explore here. Look with me in verse 11 of chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, that one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Three things I pray we see here this morning. One, a life of resistance. Two, a life of submission. And three, a life of surrender or entrusting. Peter's talking about life in a world of slander, broken governments, corrupt systems, and injustice. And that's what we're going to talk about. And in 30 minutes. A life of resistance. Last Sunday, we learned that our identity and our purpose is found in a life centered on Jesus. And I imagine the hearts of Peter's original audience when they heard this letter read to them, when they discovered that their identity and their purpose 
is grounded in the work of Jesus. And what that did to them, how their hearts must have beat faster when they heard this read out loud, all the benefits that were theirs in Christ Jesus. But I imagine the same could be true of you. Maybe you're hearing for the first time what it means to have an identity and a purpose in Christ Jesus, in a life that is built on him as the foundation stone of your life. Or maybe you're hearing it again, and and you're in that place where you need to hear it again, and and it's starting to to shape you, and, and your heart's beating faster as a result as well. This is good, because essentially what Peter has been teaching us, what we've been learning is how to live a life that is both called out and sent in, called out of darkness, called out of shame, called out of trying to earn our acceptance before God, and sent back into the world first into the marvelous, marvelous light of God, that relationship restored, and then sent back into the world, into our culture on mission, taking people by the hand and pointing them to the beauty and splendor of who God is. That's our calling. And Peter is going to get into some of the details of that calling here in this text. And what he's saying is that this life of being called out and sent in, it should produce a lifestyle or a behavior that influences everything. There's not a part of your life that living called out and sent in shouldn't influence. There's not a part of your life uh, that Jesus shouldn't influence. It's a lifestyle that spills over into the ordinary interactions of your day and into the extraordinary hardships of being misrepresented, slandered, and even suffering unjustly. What he's saying is behavior communicates what we really believe. And what we really believe is seen in how we behave or live. And he writes to them here in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you, I urge you. He's saying, to you whom I love and I care for, I urge you, please listen. This is so important. It's so important that you hear what I'm about to say. So there's a lot of emotion behind what he's about to say. There's a lot of emotion behind this appeal and for good reason. Because Peter knows the consequences. And he says in verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain from the sinful desires, the lusts of the flesh. You know, those things that you used to delight in. Those things that you used to live for. Those those things that God has called you out of. Remember, uh, we learned that we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of, of the Son, whom the Father loves. We're children of light. And he says, stay away, abstain, stay away, uh, don't participate. Oh, why? What's the motive? Because of who you are. Because of your new identity in Jesus, now you're called to live a holy life, a life that reflects that you are the set-apart people of God. And because of what's at stake. He says that the passions of the flesh are waging war against your soul or your very self. The idea here behind what he's saying is that the passions of the flesh will launch a military campaign against you. I feel like I've experienced that. The passions of the flesh, they come on strong. They do all they can to win us, to lure us. They want to harm. They want to lead us away from our true identity and purpose in Christ Jesus. I know that if you've been in Christ for any length of time, you've experienced this battle with the passions of the flesh. We live in in this body, and we all struggle with temptations and desires that do not bring honor and glory to God. 
And Peter helps us to understand when we're delighting in those things, when we're flirting with those things, he's like, hey, wake up, wake up. These things are at war against you. They're set out to destroy you. So don't delight in something that, will, that is set out to destroy you and to harm you. These are serious consequences. Are you delighting in the passions of the flesh? Are you delighting in things that the Lord has called you out of? The Lord has graciously drawn boundary lines for you to live in and grow in, to be human in, and make free decisions in. But sometimes we push against those boundary lines that he's drawn up for us because we might think to ourselves, oh God, you don't have my best interests at heart, or you're keeping something that I'd be better off having. Uh, You're keeping that from me. It's not true. He loves us. And the boundary lines that he draws up for us, though they might feel restrictive, are for our good because he loves us. And we can live free within those lines that he's drawn up, but so often we're pushing against those boundaries. We're wanting to explore what what we might, in a moment of believing a lie, think is better for us. And it's dangerous. He's saying, keep away, abstain from the passions of the flesh. They're going to harm you. They're set out to harm you. You might feel actually out of place at times when you practice this. If you're a high school student, which we have a lot of students in our first gathering because we have uh, children's ministry and a lot of families come out, but if you're a high school student, college student, if you're just a student in general and you're around other students on campus, usually like every other word might be an F-bomb or something like it. And so if you're in Christ Jesus and, 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 and you don't want to speak that way or join a conversation that's delighting in things that are shameful, um, people celebrating things that maybe you're like, I, I just don't celebrate that anymore, you're going to feel uh, like you don't belong, like you're on the outside looking in. You might even struggle with knowing how do I engage in conversation with people that no longer c- celebrate, uh, that, people that I don't celebrate the same things with. How do I do this? I want to show you in 1 Peter chapter 4 how Peter speaks to that. We'll get to this in a couple weeks, but look with me in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles or those who are not in Christ want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Let's hit the pause button for a minute and recognize that Peter lived with his eyes open. He saw what was happening in the culture uh, around him. He wasn't, he, he was aware of what people were delighting in. And, and he says, listen, you, you once lived in that sphere and now, now you've been called out of that. There was a time that you did that, but, but not anymore. And with respect to this, he says, they are surprised. Those who delight in these things, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They speak against you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. When we abstain from the passions of the flesh, we are not saying that we are better than those who are not abstaining. We're just, we're living our lives now following a new passion, a new desire. And new desires rise up within us. We're following a holy God who's called us to live a holy life with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And it's actually a life that brings out our humanity in a more glorious and beautiful way. 
Well, Peter isn't all about just saying no to things. He's not all about you just abstaining. That's important, but it's not just about a list of things to avoid. Following Jesus is not about just a list of things to avoid. You are to say no to things, but you're also to say yes to an upright, a self-controlled life as you wait for the appearing of Christ Jesus, your king. And so what does this look like? For Peter, he says in verse 12, keep your conduct, your behavior among the Gentiles, among those who don't know Jesus, who, who aren't in the family of God, keep your behavior among them honorable and good. What this means is keep, this word keep means to hold on to, to possess and embrace to give yourself in an ongoing way, and it requires endurance and resistance on our part. It's important for us to know that good works are the overflow of a life that's been transformed by the love and grace of God. The good works that we produce, the good works that we walk out, they are not the root, they are the fruit of a life that's been transformed. What is the root? If you imagine your life as a tree, your, your relationship with Christ as a tree, your root is, is in the good works of Jesus, his righteousness, his substitutionary death on your behalf for your sins. Your life is rooted in what he has done. And the more our life is rooted in the reality of who Christ is and what he's accomplished, the more we will produce the fruit that looks like we belong to him. The fruit comes from that. And Peter's saying, you should produce fruit. And something will happen as you're producing this fruit. People's lives will be changed. Those on the outside looking in and ridiculing you will actually one day uh, give glory to God on the day of visitation, is what he says. It's interesting here, he says uh, that they they were spoken of, they were spoken against as evildoers. Uh, this, this speaks of hostility and slander and misrepresentation. I don't know if you know this, but the early church, um, some believed they were cannibals because they partook of the, the body and the blood of Christ. Some believed they were atheists, that they didn't believe in God because they, how could they? They only believe in one God. Some believed that they were insurrectionists or rebels because they followed King Jesus as if they wanted to usurp all authority. What if we begin to practice what Peter is calling us to do in front of those who misunderstand and misrepresent and slander us? What if we live honorable, good lives in front of those who are not followers of Jesus, even though they speak uh, evil against us? What will happen? What will it produce? Do we believe that our behavior matters? It does matter. There is a day of visitation coming, and that means uh, the day of visitation that Peter's referring to is the day of judgment, when Christ will judge those who reject him, but also bring vindication to those who have embraced him. And it was a day on the forefront of Peter's mind. He writes about it a number of times throughout this letter. It was a day that he knew they were moving towards, and it was a day that influenced every other day of his life. And so, local church, listen, we are moving towards that day. How are we living? And are we mindful that there's an audience, whether you like that thought or not, there is an audience that we are living out our faith in front of. Our audience is the city of St. Pete. Wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you play, that's your audience. Are you living an honorable life, a good life, even in front of those who think you're an absolute fool? They might hate you, 
They might say the most hurtful things about you, but keep on living a life of resistance and watch what it produces. Number two, a life of submission. I know submission is a cuss word, especially in 2021 America. I get that. But Peter says, be subject or submit yourself, willingly submit yourself for the Lord's sake. There's the reason, there's the motive behind our submission. It's for the Lord's sake. He's talking about broken governments, human authority of all kinds in verses 13 through 17. He even mentions the emperor. The emperor? I mean, when I imagine the emperor, I think of Darth Vader. Like, really? You're going to follow him? The emperor at Peter's time is Nero. You know, the incredibly just and level-headed leader whose policies the church always celebrated? You know that guy? No, not, no. They didn't do that. He was notoriously cruel. And Peter says to honor him, respect him. Governors, like Pilate, who washed his hands of Jesus' blood and allowed him to be crucified, gave, gave the stamp of approval, or like Felix and Festus, who, who left Paul in prison in the book of Acts. What Peter doesn't say, he doesn't say only if the leader's character deserves it, then you honor him, then you respect him. He doesn't say that. Actually, what we find is that obedience and submission is, is not, it's not endorsement of that individual's policies. It's an act of devotion to God. Our obedience, our submission to authority is an act of devotion to God. You can read this in Titus chapter 3. You can read this in Romans 13. We're seeing it here where Peter himself says, these, these men, these people that are in authority, these individuals that are in authority, governors and emperors, they're sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good in an ideal world, right? Now, if you're anything like me, objections enter your mind immediately when you read this. What about all the corruption? What about all the dictators in those oppressive regimes? We're going to submit to those? Peter is not writing a detailed essay on this subject. What Peter has made clear, though, is that earthly authority isn't the real or ultimate authority at all. God is over all earthly power and has put them in place for our good. And so what Peter's saying is show the watching world, show the audience around you that you're not insurrectionists, that you're not rebels, you're not cannibals. Show the world around you that you can actually live unafraid, obedient lives under the government that's in place, under governmental authority. Yeah, I think of uh, Daniel. I think of Joseph, men in the Old Testament who lived and served in the government under these pagan kings. Now, now here's the irony. Peter was the one in the garden the night of Jesus' arrest, swinging the sword. He was the one in the garden who cut off the ear of a servant of the high priest. And so here he is, he's saying, hey, submit. But wait a minute, Peter, we read about you. We saw you swinging the sword. But see here, Peter, is, he's come to a place of learning the way of Jesus, just like you and I are doing. He's much older now. He's been following Jesus for many years as he writes this. 
He's learned the way of Jesus, and violent resistance doesn't solve anything. It actually goes against Jesus' teaching. It says, love your enemy. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. How do I love my enemy? When you start asking that question, uh, that's a good question to ask, to wrestle with. Listen, Peter would eventually lose his life to this government, the one he's calling these churches to honor. He would eventually be crucified, upside down, considered a fool, spit upon and ridiculed and mocked those crucifying him, thinking they knew what was better and had the upper hand and authority. So Peter would eventually lose his life, but not before he would testify with his life and in his death of his submission to God and his love for his enemies. You see, that's what he did with his life and in his death. He testified of his submission to God and his love for his enemies. Isn't that what Jesus did for you and I? Even while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Peter isn't saying, listen, Peter is not saying compromise your faith. Peter is not saying go against your conscience when you're honoring the emperor, respecting or submitting to whomever is in power. Do you remember when he stood before the high priest, the council of the high priest in the book of Acts? He was there with John. Uh, Let's let's read it together. Uh, We'll go to Acts chapter 5, verse 28. Hear this counsel and what they're saying to Peter and John. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, in the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Oh. Well, Peter, which is it? We must obey God rather than men or submit to governmental authorities. It's good for us to wrestle with the tension. Peter is not saying compromise your faith or go against what God has called you to do. Here's what will happen, though. When we live as honorable citizens of whatever government we're under, because, listen, we're citizens of the kingdom of God first, followers of Jesus the king first, but we have a dual citizenship. We live here in St. Pete, in the state of Florida, in the United States of America, And we're called to be good, honorable citizens here, working and living for the good of our city. And so, as you live as honorable citizens, here's what you'll do, Peter says. You will silence the ridiculous chatter out there about you. And you will model values, values that are important to God. You will model values that are important to God. You will reflect God's character, his humility, and his grace. And he he goes on to say in verse 16, do not use your freedom however you want. Don't don't use your freedom uh, thinking you've got no restraints, whether it's in regards to the passions of the flesh or whether it's in regards to your uh, submission to authority. 
It's your freedom in Christ is not a license to live however the heck you want. As if there are no restraints and no boundary lines. You don't set your own boundary lines. We follow Jesus, and as we follow Jesus, we find true freedom to be who he has called us to be and live in the freedom of his love and grace. And so he says, in light of that, verse 17, honor everyone, treat everyone with dignity and worth and value. Oh, they are made in God's image. Regardless of what they believe and how they treat you, you can treat that one person or that group of people that's treating you uh, in, in, in a way that is wicked and evil, you can treat them as people made in God's image. You can honor them. And he says, fear God. He is the one in whom your ultimate allegiance and loyalty should be found. So fear him. Don't fear the emperor. Don't fear the king. Don't honor the president the way you'd honor God. Honor him, but you don't fear him, not like you fear God. Peter is wrestling with how do we live lives in the world that God has placed us in under governmental authorities. A lot of misrepresentation going on in our day. A lot of writing people off. It's time, church, that we rise above it and walk in love and grace. Live honorable lives. Watch what it produces. Watch what God will do through it. And then he gets even uh, into the mess of society even more. And he talks about the corrupt system uh, and injustice of slavery in verses 18 through 20. He's addressing servants or slaves and as maybe I read this earlier, you might have cringed a little bit when you, you heard some of the, 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 the language that Paul was, uh, Peter rather was using. We immediately think about the slavery that has stained American history when we hear the word slave. Well, in Peter's day, there were three classes within society. There were the Roman citizens who had full rights and protection under law. There was the freedmen who had restricted protection. And then there was the servant class. A very large class made up of slaves, most of them household slaves. And many Christians were household slaves. Some want to compare this to the employee or employer relationship. But listen, regardless, uh, this was a corrupt system, and slaves were oftentimes mistreated. And if you read here and, and in other epistles or letters, whether it's Colossians or Ephesians or Galatians, you hear the letters addressing um, or laying out a household code. And what that means is that they're addressing individuals within the household, whether it's husband and wife and children, slaves and masters. And they're teaching them how to live now as followers of Jesus within the society that we've been placed in. Peter is addressing members of society that were most prone to suffer injustice. He's addressing slaves here, and next Sunday, Mark will preach uh, on, on wives and husbands. So by addressing them, though, directly, he's treating them, listen, by addressing these slaves directly, as he writes this letter, Peter is treating them with dignity and value, and he validates their equality and worth in God's sight among the community of God's people. And actually, by doing that, that is the beginning of what would eventually be the unraveling of this corrupt system. In that day, to place faith in Jesus and to live in a household where your master didn't do the same 
would have produced some serious suspicion. And so Peter encouraged loyalty and submission, not only to masters who were kind and gentle and who embraced Jesus as king, but even to those who were unjust and were embracing a false god. And what he's calling them to is a response that is so contrary. It's so contrary to what we prefer. But it's one that God did use powerfully and continues to use powerfully. The civil rights movement was so effective in our country, partly because of its commitment not to retaliate. Not to retaliate with with violence. Now, this is not encouraging you to stay in an abusive situation. Do not hear that. If you're in an abusive situation, you need to get out. This is not saying there's never the time to resist oppression. In fact, I would argue that this is resisting oppression, what Peter is calling them to. If you suffer for doing good, Peter says, this is a gracious thing in God's sight. Well, hold up. He says, if you suffer for doing wrong, if you talk back to the one in charge, if you steal from him, if you rebel against him, well, you should expect to be punished. But if you suffer for doing what's right and good, Peter says this is a gracious thing in God's sight. What's he mean by that? I think he means that you're living out God's story of redemption, that you are modeling as you model God's sacrificial love and his hard-to-understand grace. God is going to use that, and he'll be honored by it. So where can you do this? Where can you model, where can you live out God's story of redemption? Where can you model God's sacrificial love and his hard-to-understand grace within the context of authority in your life? People who don't treat you right, people who have looked down on you, people who talk badly about you. How can you treat them and honor them as people who have value in God's sight, made in his image, and also people who need to see radical love and grace at work? How can you begin to do that now in your workplace? Maybe with a professor who's been giving you a hard time. Maybe with other coworkers who have been talking behind your back and you know it. How are you going to respond both in person, and let me just throw this in there, and online, on social media? Will you live out God's story of redemption? Or do you feel like you have to pay back wrong with wrong? I know it's hard. Nothing here is easy. Imagine living in a household where you actually earned your living serving somebody who was set against you because he was embracing a different God, a false God. And as you embrace Jesus and we're trying to live out your faith, faithfully uh, within the context God has put you in, you knew you were dependent on what that man gave you uh, so that you could survive and feed your family. But he spoke down on you and he hurt you and he was mean to you and he wasn't, and all you want to do is fight. Peter is saying, no, listen, there's a better way. There's a different way. It's revolutionary. We've talked about a life of resistance. We've talked about a life of submission. And now let's look at a life of surrender. It's all been leading to this, to a life of really following Jesus' steps. Let's read it again, starting in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What Peter is saying here is that this is the kind of life you've been invited into, the kind of life that Christ lived. And that the way of Jesus is actually the way of patient surrender. And Jesus gave us an example. He gave us a pattern to follow in his steps, to actually imitate. Peter will go on to quote Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6 primarily. Uh, Isaiah 52 and 53, uh, the prophet Isaiah, who lived 700 years before Jesus, wrote of a suffering servant. He wrote about a suffering servant that would come and who would receive worship from all the nations, who would suffer and be humiliated and, and one day be exalted. And Peter is swimming in Isaiah 53. I want you to see it. Turn with me to Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. Who is the suffering servant? Peter says Jesus is. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the one that Isaiah spoke of. He was the one who was reviled and did not revile in return. He was the one who committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when he suffered, he did not threaten back, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself so we can entrust ourselves. We can surrender to the one who judges justly. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to entrust our lives to him who judges justly? God the Son stood before his accusers and didn't speak back, but he entrusted everything that was going on to the one who judges justly, to the Father. We're seeing the distinction. We serve one God expressed in three. I know we're swimming in the deep end of the pool here theologically, but it's true. And anytime we talk about God, we're swimming in the deep end. And so here Jesus is entrusting his life and the circumstances that he was facing and even the future to the one who judges justly, to the Father. Will we do the same? It is a decision to trust God with the situation that we're in and whatever comes next even when your heart aches. You know, entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly, it doesn't mean you won't suffer grief. It doesn't mean that you won't suffer heartache. It means that in the midst of the heartache and in the midst of the grief, you choose to say this, I know you're in control. I don't understand why you allowed this to happen, but I trust you. I surrender. This isn't an escapist mentality. This is recognition that God is just and will make all things right. This is recognition that God is active and present, that he loves you. This is recognition that you are not the one in charge. It's holding on to what is true of God, his character. 
When life is unfair, when you're slandered, when you're hurt and misrepresented, the thoughts of revenge and payback are so satisfying. But Jesus calls us to live differently. In fact, revenge, unforgiveness, bitterness, hatred, it's a prison cell. It is a prison cell. There there isn't a verse I turn to more than this one when sitting down with people who have gone through tragedies of all kinds. Heartache and heartbreak. Just one thing after the next. We live in a broken world. It's terribly difficult to walk through events of our life that hurt, that we don't understand. But I've turned people here again and again and again. I can't share the details, but there was one circumstance where there was a family that was hurt by someone and hurt in a way that it doesn't get worse then. And the person ended up in jail. And one of the individuals in the family who I was sitting with expressed such bitterness and hatred towards this man in jail. And in those moments of conversation, it dawned on me that this individual, if he continues to embrace the bitterness and the unforgiveness, will himself exist in a prison cell. And in actuality, his abuser, the one who hurt him, will continue to have the upper hand over him. But when we entrust our circumstance and ourselves to the one who judges justly, what are we saying? We are not saying that the abuser, that he's okay and that what he did was all right. No. We recognize it's wrong. It's terrible. What are we saying? I'm not the ultimate judge. I'm entrusting this to the one who will judge justly. I'm entrusting this. It's, I, I, it's, it's not mine to bear anymore. I can give it to God because he sees and he knows and he cares and he's at work and he's active and he's just and good. The foundation of his throne is goodness and justice. He's fair in all of his ways. He's not going to wink at what happened. He won't let it go. It breaks his heart too. And so I can entrust this to him, knowing that he judges justly and knowing that the one who hurt me, well, their sin will will either be forgiven through the blood of Christ And payment for their sin will be through the cross of Christ. Or they will stand before God as their judge and pay for their sins. God is going to right every wrong. He's going to wipe the tear away. The tears away. He's going to. Are you able to entrust yourself and your circumstances to the one who judges justly? Are you able to entrust uh, your abuser, the one who hurts you more than anyone else, to the one who judges justly? It is not yours to bear. Entrust your life, entrust your circumstances, entrust your future to the one who judges justly. Find freedom in it. In verses 24 and 25, Peter goes on to say, he talks about the death of Christ and he died that we might die to sin and live a life of righteousness devoted to reflecting God's character. 
He talks about how by his wounds, we've been healed. By the wounds of Christ, the suffering of Christ, we've been healed. And so listen, church, as we close, the cross of Jesus is a reminder that there isn't a sinful desire. There isn't a perverse word or a governmental authority or corrupt system that has power over you to change what Jesus accomplished. There isn't anything someone can say to you or do to you, not an act of injustice, not the taking of your life that will change what Jesus accomplished. And so we can live in the freedom of this. Live in the freedom of that. Instead of retaliating, instead of getting even, instead of riding off, we can show love even to those who hurt us and slander us, who are out to harm us. When we do that, when we live that way, that kind of life brings the reality of heaven to earth. That kind of life brings strength to our words when we go on to speak about Jesus. That kind of life demonstrates the radical, sacrificial, and hard-to-understand grace of God. We get to demonstrate that to a watching world. The way of Jesus isn't always what we think it is. It isn't easy. We won't always understand it. It will push us out of our comfort zone. It will challenge us in our thinking. It will shake us out of behavior that we thought was okay. And that's good. We're invited into a life of resistance and submission and a life of surrender, of entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. Live in the freedom of it, church. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can entrust ourselves to you who judges justly. That you're, you're not indifferent, you're active. You're involved in our lives. You care deeply about the hurt and the pain that we're walking in. It's not ours to bear. Thank you that we've been healed of our sin through Christ and his broken body his obedient life and substitutionary death. Help us to live in the freedom that nothing and no one can take away what we've gained in Christ. Oh God, please help us to live in that freedom that we would then go and show sacrificial love and hard to understand grace to those around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.